The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. Welcome back to another episode of This Week in Creepy History. I'm your host, Chris Chavez, and this is the show where we take a look at the upcoming week and what happened in the past. We're going to get right to it this week, guys. We're going to start. This is covering May 9th to May 15th. Let's do this. May 9th, 1864. Union General John Sedgwick is shot and killed by a Confederate sharpshooter. According to Battlefields.org, Major General John Sedgwick was one of the most experienced and competent officers in the Army of the Potomac. He was also greatly respected and beloved by his men. Born in 1813, he graduated from West Point in 1837, later serving in the Seminole War, the Mexican War, and at various posts in the West. He became a brigadier general at the beginning of the Civil War and led a division at Antietam, where he was seriously wounded. Returning to duty in 1863, Sedgwick was placed in command of the 6th Corps, which he led at Chanceville in Gettysburg. The 6th Corps arrived at Spotsylvania on the afternoon of May 8th, and the following day, Confederate sharpshooters began peppering the area throughout the morning. Staff officers cautioned Sedgwick not to approach the road, but he forgot their warnings a few minutes later when he walked over to untangle a snarl in his line. When his men warned him to take cover, Sedgwick responded by joking, quote, They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Just then, a sharpshooter's bullet crashed into his skull right below his left eye, killing him instantly. So, so one of the things I saw as I was reading uh, said something along the lines of his actual statement got caught off. He didn't actually finish the word distance. He said dist and then he was hit. Not sure which is true, but, um, you know, this is it's one of those kinds of uh, isn't it ironic? Don't you think? I don't know. Anyway, let's move on to May 9th, 1980. Friday the 13th is released in theaters written by Victor Miller and directed by Sean Cunningham. The film follows a group of teenage camp counselors who are murdered one by one by an unknown killer while attempting to reopen an abandoned summer camp. Little did anyone know the movie would launch a slasher franchise that spawned sequels, books, comics, video games, and even a television series, though technically it wasn't tied to the films at all. I remember that. So I'm a big fan of slasher films, a huge fan of Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, Halloween, the original franchise horror films. Um, I remember back in the day when they put out Friday the 13th, the TV series, and when I tuned in, you know, hoping to catch a glimpse of Jason or some sort of slasher murders happening. Uh, it wasn't the case. And uh, Jason just wasn't in it at all. It had nothing to do with Jason. It had nothing to do with Camp Crystal Lake. It was tragic. It was tragic. But let's move on. May 10th, 1994. The inauguration ceremony for South Africa's first black president, Nelson Mandela, takes place in the Union Building's amphitheater in Pretoria, 
attended by politicians and dignitaries from more than 140 countries around the world. In 94, I was 16. When you're 16, at least back then, you're not paying attention to world news, even something as big as South Africa's first black president. We didn't have social media, Google, or Twitter, so the news wasn't in our faces at every moment of the day. I remember it was kind of a big thing, but that's about it. It wouldn't be until like later on that I would learn more about apartheid and Mandela's role in history. I wonder, like, I wonder how much they teach in history class now. Like, do they cover a lot of what happened back then? You know, do they cover this at all, or is this just a blip? Is this, you know, a couple of sentences or just a a, a paragraph on the last page? Because you start to you start to think, right? You get to a point where there's just too much history. You have to kind of gloss over stuff. So, what do you decide to really focus on? And what do you just kind of speed through? And I know a lot of more recent history sometimes gets sped through, but I'd be very interested to see what history books look like right now in schools and what they're teaching maybe of the 90s, what happened in the 90s. Anyway, let's move on. May 10th, 1973. Bruce Lee collapses at Golden Harvest Studios in Hong Kong during audio dubbing sessions for Enter the Dragon. According to Wikipedia, he suffered seizures and headaches and was immediately rushed to Hong Kong Baptist Hospital where doctors diagnosed cerebral edema, basically swelling of the brain. They were able to reduce the swelling through the administration of mannitol. The headache and the cerebral edema that occurred in his first collapse would later repeat on the day of his death. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Bruce Lee. Actually, we just covered an episode of Silence Your Phones. Um, Actually, I just recorded it. It hasn't come out yet, where we cover Enter the Dragon. And I had just found out recently that that entire movie was dubbed. I thought like there were certain parts that were dubbed because you could totally tell. But the entire movie's dubbed. It was filmed without audio, and the entire movie was dubbed later on. All vocals, all, you know, sound effects, all, you know, ambient effects. Yeah, it's the the entire thing uh, in studio. So this was, you know, what happened here. You would see repeated. He would it would repeat again, and and unfortunately bring us to you know an early demise for one of the greats in martial arts history, Bruce Lee. All right, let's move on to May eleventh, nineteen sixty nine. The Battle of Hamburger Hill begins. According to HistoryPlace dot com, while attempting to seize the Dong at Baya Mountains. U.S. troops repeatedly scaled the hill over a 10-day period and engaged in bloody hand-to-hand combat with the North Vietnamese. After finally securing the objective, American military staff decided to abandon the position as it was of little strategic value. The North Vietnamese would retake the hill shortly thereafter. This action caused a controversy both in the American military and public. The debate over Hamburger Hill reached the United States Congress with particularly severe criticism of military leadership by Senators Edward Kennedy, George McGovern, and Stephen M. Young. In its June 27th issue, Life magazine published the photographs of 242 Americans killed in one week in Vietnam. This is now considered a watershed event of negative public opinion toward the Vietnam War. While only five of the 241 featured photos were those killed in the Battle of Hamburger Hill, many Americans had the perception that all of the photos featured in the magazine were casualties of that battle. U.S. losses during that 10-day battle, 72 killed, 372 wounded. I remember seeing this movie, Hamburger Hill, when I was in high school, and... It was intense. It's a pretty intense movie, man. It and it's exactly what it says here. You know, these men were told by leadership that look, we're going to take that hill. You know, the 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 North Vietnamese have the hill. We're going to take it. We're going to attack them and take it. The problem is, is you're fighting uphill, and they weren't using like they weren't using 
aircraft strikes. They weren't using, you know, they weren't using that. It was, it was all just men doing their best to really try to get up that hill, shoot their way up and, and take it. Yeah. It's a rough one. Let's move on from that. May 11th, 1972. John Lennon and Yoko Ono are guests on the Dick Cavett show. During their appearance, Lennon claims the FBI has been following him and tapping his phones. According to Far Out Magazine, quote, having angered President Richard Nixon with a series of outspoken demonstrations, criticizing the Vietnam War and the American government, the pair believe they were being deliberately targeted for deportation even after setting up their HQ in New York. Lennon even suggests that the FBI have them under surveillance. Cavett, ever the professional, moves on rather quickly, not dwelling on the idea. But one can tell there's a palpable sense of disbelief within the audience. After all, the FBI isn't interested in such things as pop music and John Lennon. Well, of course they were. As we would find out later on, the FBI did follow Lennon, uh, was doing their best to get him deported. There, there was files that were on them. Uh, in fact, brought to light by John Weiner. The FBI documented over 300 pieces of evidence on John Lennon around this time, with virtually none of it having any substance whatsoever. Again, I'm a huge Beatles fan, so I knew this story. I knew a lot about this, and that was the case at the time, too. Anyone that was speaking out against the country, they were looking to see what they could find to get rid of these people because what that would end up doing you know, would be to rile up a lot of the younger generation, which you know, we did see happen. We, we saw a lot of the younger generation not you know, happy with American presence in Vietnam, and, and a lot of the things we see from back then, you know, the protests, the anti-war demonstrations, um, it was a big deal. And so when you have somebody that's considered the voice of a generation speaking out against it, pretty much just kind of fueling and supporting the cause, uh, it's not good for the people in charge when they're the ones really trying to push the war forward. So they did their best, and it didn't work out so well. May 12, 1942. Nazi U-boat sinks American cargo ship at the mouth of the Mississippi River. According to ScienceMag.org in 1942, in the midst of World War II, the oil tanker Virginia was anchored off the mouth of the Mississippi River in the Gulf of Mexico, waiting to unload its cargo in nearby New Orleans. It never made it. Three torpedoes from a German submarine, the U-507, caused the ship to become engulfed in flames, sinking it and killing 27 of its crew. Now, if you listen to our show regularly, you'll have heard me reference the fact that I've always been fascinated with World War II, so I know that there were a number of lesser-known attacks on our country by German and Japanese forces. Aside from Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attacked both California and Oregon coasts. Um, Germany sent several spies into the U.S. hoping to sabotage our war efforts. This happened a whole lot more than people think. And, you know, if you don't know much about that kind of thing and you are interested in that, I would highly suggest looking into that kind of stuff. It's very interesting to see the kind of war that was happening that wasn't on the battlefield and on the front lines. Um, Let's move on. May 12th, 1967. Are You Experienced by the Jimi Hendrix Experience is released, boasting iconic tracks such as Foxy Lady, Red House, Hey Joe, The Wind Cries Mary, and Fire, the album would go on to become one of the most influential of all time. Rolling Stone listed it at number 30 on their 500 greatest albums of all time list. Yeah, what can you say, man? Well, I mean, what else is there to say that has not been said about Jimi Hendrix, right? There's people who claim the dude was a god, like a literal god among men. 
people think maybe he was a visitor from the stars. He was an alien, right? Like he was doing things and trying to communicate to the masses in a way that, you know, we just weren't ready for at the time. Musicians look to him and look at his skill, guitarists, and will always say there was no one that could touch him, you know? Yeah, you know, you you heard Clapton was amazing. Jeff Beck was amazing. There was all these guys that were up there, Jimmy Page. But when, when it came down to it, man, they all looked to Hendrix, and they all looked to Hendrix, you know, like he was the god. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to waste too much time talking about Hendrix because, again, it's it's all been said. It's all been done. May 13th, 1981. Pope John Paul II was shot twice at close range while riding in an open automobile in St. Peter's Square in Rome. So I'm going to read an article about this. This is from newsinfo.inquirer.net. Now that's inquirer, like you're inquiring, not enquirer, like the National Enquirer. Panic and prayers the day Pope John Paul II was shot. St. Peter's Square in Rome was packed with 20,000 faithful hoping to catch a glimpse of John Paul II on that fateful May afternoon. 40 years ago. Suddenly, as his open white Fiat Popemobile eased through the crowd, the pontiff collapsed, shot at close range by a far-right Turkish nationalist whose motives remain mysterious to this day. At 5.41 p.m. on May 13, 1981, AFP flashed Pope John Paul II wounded by two gunshots. The 60-year-old was immediately rushed to the hospital. He was hit in the abdomen, left hand, and right arm. Two women in the Polish-born Pope's entourage were also hurt. Rome was gripped by panic. Paramedics, police, and journalists rushed to the scene and to the hospital. It's huge there, too. Like, the Pope and, and you know, Catholicism is very, very big, and especially that specific area, right? Like St. Peter's Square, right there in, in the Vatican. Uh, Italian authorities quickly confirmed the shooter, 23-year-old Mehmet Ali Akka, had been arrested and that his weapon was a Browning handgun. His accomplice, another Turk, Oral Selick, fled and was arrested a few years later in France for drug trafficking and then extradited to Italy. The news set off a frenzy around the world and prayers flooded in for the first ever Slavic Pope. So I don't remember this, you know, specifically, uh, I was a baby, obviously, but um, I, I know about it later on. Like this was a big thing that I've seen in documentaries about the 80s. You know, uh, these, these shows, uh, like the VH1 list show, like I love the 80s. You know, this is this is one of some of the things that they covered because it was a big deal. Somebody trying to assassinate the Pope and then not just assassinate the Pope, but assassinate John Paul II. Like this dude was beloved. Everyone loved this dude. Apparently what ended up happening too, like so he would end up speaking from his hospital bed. He was kind of weak, just, you know, saying that he was going to be fine and asking everybody to pray for him. But then he shocked everyone by telling everyone to pray for the person that shot him as well. And then, true to being kind of the cool dude that he was, as soon as he was good and he came out of the hospital, he ended up going and visiting the guy in jail um, and, like, taking confession from the guy and talking to him for a while and, and uh, you know, basically, again, reiterating the fact that he forgave him. Um, so, man, John Paul II, right? He would end up becoming a saint. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. Can you imagine being shot and then just going up to the dude and being like, you know what? I forgive you. <laughs> You're having a bad day. I forgive you. May 13th, 1992. This is going to be the first time I'm going to do this. We're going to have a sound clip to uh, go with this headline. Frank Stallone, brother of Sylvester, beats Geraldo Rivera in a three-round boxing match on the Howard Stern Show. Geraldo Rivera making another appearance on This Week in Creepy History. Uh, Let's see what Frank Stallone had to say about that day back in 1992. 
Yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was going up to Howard Stern promoting something. And as I was walking up, Andrew Dice Clay was in the studio. And they were on the speakerphone with Geraldo because Geraldo started getting into boxing and stuff. And he said, I'll fight any celebrity. He goes, and you too, Andrew. He goes, oh, I don't want to fight, you know. So I'm standing there, and I had I hadn't been in the ring in 12 years. Oh, you want to fight Geraldo? I go, not really, not really. No, I don't. So all of a sudden, Howard gets whiff of it, and he won't leave me alone. He goes, "Oh, yeah, it'll be for charity now." Now it's Geraldo's charity. I'm getting nothing out of this. Okay, so I said, "Okay, whatever." And my brother's freaking out. He goes, "If you get beaten by a newscaster, it just kills our whole dynasty in Rocky. It just killed the whole series." So we do the fight. Here comes Flintstone over the right hand. And again, Rivera tried just to hang on. Busted my right hand. I took it seriously enough. My hand was like wrapped for months. I wasn't even aware of it. I remember in the first round, never forget, I was sitting in the corner and my chest was not even moving. I was gassed. I had this look on my face like a deer in the headlight. I got, God almighty. And you know, I slipped. They said it was a knockdown. It was not. And I won the fight, and Geraldo had a look on his face like, oh, now Frank's going to go off of me, which I didn't do. I said, you know, he's a brave guy. I said, you know, all credit to him. When I walked out, there was like 8,000 people in the street. It was amazing, man. So there you have it. Um, you can probably find the whole clip, the whole the, the entire fight on YouTube somewhere. It's it's nonsense. It's just these two guys, you know, obviously past their prime. Geraldo's definitely not in his prime here. You know, he's not as old as he is nowadays, but obviously he's not in his prime during this time. He looks he's in good shape though. Uh, but these guys are just kind of you know they're get like like Stallone said, man, he was gassed out. You know, uh, you know Geraldo was wasn't as gassed at the beginning, but towards the end there, you could tell he was he was hurting for some air. Um, and, and what wasn't like, it feels like this was kind of like the epitome of what the rest of the nineties would kind of be like, right? All of the just kind of wild Jerry Springer, Howard Stern, Geraldo Rivera esque type of like, like spectacles. Uh, this is definitely one of them. May 13th, 92. All right, let's move to the next day. May 14th. We're going to go back to 1804. The core of discovery a specially established unit of the United States Army, which formed the nucleus of the Lewis and Clark expedition, started the journey west from Camp Dubois near present-day Hartford, Illinois. According to Wikipedia, under Clark's command, they traveled up the Missouri River to St. Charles, Missouri, where Lewis joined them six days later. The expedition set out the next afternoon on May 21st. While accounts vary, it is believed that the Corps had as many as 45 members, including officers, enlisted military personnel, civilian volunteers, and Clark's African-American slave, York. They would end up reaching the Pacific Ocean on November 20, 1805, and arriving back in St. Louis, Missouri on September 23, 1806. I did, so here's, here's the thing for you, right? It wasn't until doing the research for this and, and, and reading up on this piece here that I found out that Lewis and Clark expedition was more than just those two guys. I don't know why, but I feel like when we were being taught this in history class uh, growing up, that it was always just these two guys out there in the wilderness that came across uh, Native Americans and befriended Sacagawea, who ended up helping them throughout the rest of their way, something along those lines. I did not know it was basically an entire group of guys out there um, you know, making their way across what would, it, what would be to them the wilderness? It was the unknown. They had no clue what was going on and how long they would have to be before they saw the ocean again. So um, this is, you know, this is always one of those ones that they're kind of held up in high esteem, Lewis and Clark, 
these, you know, the the men in history who kind of braved the unknown to to kind of advance our society at the time. It's interesting. Definitely stuff that so it's it's always when I come up across stuff like this where I'm learning a little bit more even you know after so many years of being really into history and knowing a lot of this stuff. Man, I just love it, man. History's great. Learn something new every day. Uh, May 14th, 1998, Seinfeld's final two-part episode, the finale, airs on NBC to 76.3 million viewers. Holy crap. After nine seasons, the show finally came to an end, and it would be a finale that would divide fans to this day. Many saw the final episode as a fitting end to the show about nothing, while others felt it was underwhelming and failed to deliver on expectations. I remember watching this. I remember when it aired. I remember it being a big deal. I remember feeling like, wow, this show's over. But I hadn't been a big fan at the time. Like I had just jumped onto it towards the end there. Uh, it wouldn't be until later that I became a very big fan watching it on syndication and then, you know, on streaming services. Uh, I've seen the, the entire series straight through probably like 30, 40 times. It's, it, you know, it's, it's one of my favorites. I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. Here's a fun fact. Commercials uh, we're going for $2 million for a 30-second spot during this final episode. It was, it was, that's insane. You're talking Super Bowl, Super Bowl numbers for, th- for 30 seconds. I don't even know what to say to that. You know what I need to say? Let's move on. May 15th, 1993. Masked French police commandos free six girls and their nursery teacher, shooting their captor dead and ending a two-day hostage crisis at a nursery school in Paris. I'm going to read this article as well for you. This is from the Seattle Times, May 16th, 93. So this is the next day. Teacher in hostage taking hailed as national heroine, children safe after 46-hour drama in France. A 30-year-old school teacher who refused to leave her nursery school class during 46 hours of being held hostage by a man with sticks of dynamite strapped to his waist was hailed as a national heroine yesterday after the ordeal ended with all the children safe and the hostage taker shot to death by police. The teacher, Lawrence Dreyfus, told the children that the armed stranger in their classroom was there to repair the school heating system. With calm professionalism that won effusive praise from French political leaders, she supervised the children in games and art projects and led them in song to distract them from the life and death drama around them. Holy crap! Can you imagine this? That that's that's intense. I could see why they looked for, looked at her like she was a hero, man. Uh, the man with the dynamite, who described himself in papers discovered at the scene as the human bomb, was identified by police as Eric Schmidt, forty-two, an Algerian-born Frenchman. Schmidt was f- shot four times in the head by elite police units who entered the classroom under government orders. The police action staged just after dawn was described as a last-ditch effort to save the six children, all girls ages four and five. Officials had already provided the $18.5 million Schmidt had demanded as ransom for the children, but officials became worried when the hostage-taker lost interest in the money and began to appear suicidal. Moving into the classroom while Schmidt was sleeping, the policemen assigned to a special unit first covered the children with mattresses and then shot Schmidt with silencer-equipped weapons when he awoke and appeared threatening. Police discovered 4.4 pounds of dynamite, including 16 sticks of dynamite, strapped to Schmidt's waist in the classroom. The dynamite was wired to a detonator in Schmidt's hand. Uh, Mainly because of the efforts of Dreyfus, officials say the children emerged from the volatile episode relatively unscathed. 
Dreyfus and firewoman pediatrician Evelyn Lambert, 26, who helped the children and who defied Schmidt by refusing to give him stimulant drugs he requested to stay awake, will be awarded the nation's top honor for heroism, the Legion d'Honneur. Uh, that's intense. That's pretty crazy, man, right? Like, so... I've never heard of that before. This is the first time I've ever heard of this. And it and when I was reading about this, I was just like, I have to read this article because I have to I, I you guys had to hear like how crazy this was. This is intense, intense. Man, good for her, man. Good for her. May 15th, 1928. This is the last one. Let's do this. Plane crazy. And when I say plane, I mean like the airplane. Plane crazy. An American silent animated short film directed by Walt Disney and Ub Ewerks is given a test screening to a theater audience in 1928, but fails to pick up a distributor. It is the very first appearance of Mickey Mouse. See, I always thought Steamboat Willie was the first Mickey Mouse cartoon, but apparently that would come out later that year as Mickey Mouse's first sound cartoon. Um, that would see an enormous success. And because of that, Plain Crazy would be released again with sound on March 17th, 1929. Not, a, you know, I, I wouldn't go, I, I'm not going to go out of, I'm not going to say I'm a huge Mickey Mouse fan. I don't hate the, I don't hate the mouse. But, uh, you know, I'm, Disney Disney's one of those properties that when I was a kid, I enjoyed a lot of Disney stuff. As I got older, it felt like Disney was supposed to be more for kids still. Uh, as I got even older, then I could appreciate certain elements about Disney and certain things, nostalgia. Um, but when it comes to Mickey Mouse, you know, I think anybody's going to tell you that, you know, there's there's something about Mickey Mouse that everybody can, will always recognize it. And there is this kind of happiness that seems tied to that character. So, uh, yeah, May 15th, 1928 was the actual first appearance of Mickey Mouse in the silent film Playing Crazy. There you have it. There's our week in creepy history from May 9th to May 15th. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I appreciate it. Again, I'm sorry this one's late as as, as last week's was, uh, you know, but I got it out for you. We got that side out right before this episode. Hope you guys enjoyed that one. We've got How Bizarre coming up next. Keep your eye out for it. Again, if you are not a Creeper Club member and you're interested in becoming one, head over to patreon.com slash historycreeps and uh, go ahead and choose your way of subscribing to the clubhouse. Uh, we do have a bunch of stuff on there right now and a whole bunch is about to drop. I've been working on editing and updating some stuff. So get ready, Creeper Club members. If you've been waiting for it, it's coming. There's a bunch of stuff coming your way. So it is time to end the show. So I'm shutting the lights. Make sure you lock the doors behind you as we leave the clubhouse. Hey, Creepers, as always, see you next week. Stay creepy. Stay creepy.